2: Hi, this is Johnny Eccles from Love, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts.
3: Charlie Shepard drove his flatbed truck north on Interstate 85, approaching the little town of Salisbury, North Carolina. The old 48 Dodge ran much smoother unloaded. Earlier that day, August 6, 1973, Charlie dropped off a load of Carolina Pine two towns over in China Grove. With the truck windows wide open, the swampy summer heat poured into the cab. Charlie's shirt was stuck with sweat to the seat back. The rain had finally stopped. That was good news. The month prior, Rowan County experienced some of the heaviest rain on record, and it lasted on into August. That morning, blue skies had last. Charlie seized the chance to get some work in. Approaching the Klumac Road overpass, now known as Jake Alexander Boulevard, off to the right, he noticed the near-empty parking lot of Rowan Technical College. Summer vacation, Charlie mused as he rattled his old truck down the interstate. Then he heard that jarring noise, halfway between a thump and a crunch, that unmistakable sound of a vehicle collision. At the same instant, Charlie felt a powerful jolt from behind. Time slowed to a crawl. He realized, with mounting dread, the truck was creaming out of control. There was a sickening lurch, and Charlie's truck flipped. It was a complete rollover. The old Dodge ended up back on its wheels on the grassy right shoulder on the highway. Charlie, just 23 at the time, was alive and conscious, but... He was going in and out. His upper lip felt detached from his face and he was already soaked in blood from multiple cuts to his face and body. Both ankles were broken. It took a long, painful time for help to arrive. (laughs) Trooper Don Moran of the North Carolina Highway Patrol was first on the scene. It was a highway rear-ender. Moran had seen plenty of those. Most likely the result of distraction or inattention. A 73 Mercury Monterey, big four-door luxury sedan, a Hertz rental out of Greenville, South Carolina, had plowed into the back of Charlie Shepard's farm truck. The truck was on the shoulder. The car ended up on the median. Moran assessed the injuries. Two people hurt. One not too bad. The other would need immediate attention. He radioed for medical transport, then started taking measurements, talking to witnesses. He learned that a third person had been injured, a passenger riding in the Mercury. Some friends, following just a little behind, had seen the accident and pulled over. They got the as-yet-unidentified passenger out and took him to the local hospital. All this before Moran had even rolled up in his police cruiser. Trooper Moran frowned a moment, clicked his pen. Someone messing with the integrity of his accident scene, then leaving that scene? Yeah, that didn't sit well with him. On the other hand, if that guy really was hurt bad, well, that was the right thing to do. He shook off the thought. And my lookout, he reminded himself, just write the report. The ambulance rolled up a few minutes later. Charlie Shepard was only dimly aware of his surroundings as he was lifted onto a gurney and transported to Rowan Memorial. Flat on his back in the emergency room, things started coming into focus a little bit more. There was somebody on the gurney next to him, somebody who was also badly hurt, alive but unconscious. Charlie didn't know who it was, and he would not find out that day. He overheard some quiet but urgent conversation. Charlie couldn't make out the words, but the ER staff quickly moved the other patient away. The attending physician, Dr. Harold Newman, moved over to assist Charlie. DJ Whitfield, charge nurse at Rowan, would have preferred to be at Charlie's bedside assisting Dr. Newman. Instead, she was stuck at her desk fielding phone calls, each one more frantic and insistent than the last. Reporters mostly, first from local outfits, then from the New York Times, the CBS Evening News, even the BBC. Now it was the singer Roberta Flack, now it was some lawyer, now some music business person. She hadn't even seen the patient and didn't know the extent of the injuries. Even if she did know, DJ Whitfield, RN, would never break doctor-patient confidentiality. So, in her soft Carolina drawl, she sweetly and politely told each caller, Now if you'll excuse me, I have a shift to run. (laughs) Bless your heart and then the phone would ring again. The patient in question wasn't long for Rowan Memorial anyway. He was admitted and treated, but almost right away the ER staff decided to move him to North Carolina Baptist Hospital in Winston-Salem, 40 miles away. 23-year-old male, blind since birth. Toxicology screen was negative for drugs and alcohol, head trauma, serious by the looks of it. He needed to be seen by a neurologist, possibly a neurosurgeon. Non-responsive, but vital signs were stable enough to move him, Dr. Newman decided. His small town hospital lacked the necessary expertise. Before they transported the patient, I had to sew him up, Dr. Newman told his family at dinner that night. By then, it was international news. Later that same evening, at 9.05 p.m., the patient was admitted to NC Baptist. The next morning, back at Rowan Memorial, Charlie Shepard finally heard the story. What really happened out there on I-85? He asked, Who's Stevie Wonder?
1: podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It will discuss adult themes and may use coarse language. Pantheon Podcast presents Rock and Roll Archaeology with host Christian Swain. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. And now, on with the show.
3: Hey there. Welcome to another edition of Rock and Roll Archaeology on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Yes, I'm Christian Swain and I'm behind the mic in San Francisco. All right, a little housekeeping and we'll get right into it. Rockandrollarchaeology.com is on the web. Social media links are right there too. Hey, leave a review if you want. We love those, good and or bad. Let us know the truth. Richard blogs on Medium, and uh, Jerry's a composer and music producer. Uh, You might check out that stuff. And uh, you know all about me. But if you want to know more, again, links are right on the front page of the website, rockerarchaeology.com. We've got giveaways on our Patreon page every month. You can get in on those for as little as one US dollar. It is a rock and raffle. You know, get your ticket patreon.com slash rock and roll archaeology. You know, go ahead. You know you want to do it. We often use and always appreciate an online archive called Rocks Back Pages. And you might not know this. There's a free tier at rocksbackpages.com. You don't have to subscribe at all to use it. We'd like to point you to Episode 4, 6, 10, and 13. Uh, There's a lot of relevant backstory in those episodes. Um, You can find it on the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Probably right here where you're listening. We're back on the music of Black America in this episode. This time in the early and mid-70s. It's very rich territory and towering over it all was Stevie Wonder. Stevie's incredible run of albums and tours in the 70s, well, it's one of the big takeaways from that decade in music history. In our view, all that sparkling creative output was born of and made possible by Marvin Gaye's masterpiece, What's Going On. In 1970, Marvin kicked the door open and then Stevie barged on in. It's a great story. It's going to be fun to tell. And the music we're going to highlight in this one. Whew, oh, my goodness. All right. We'll pause to pay the bills now. A reminder Patreon supporters get access to ad free versions of our podcast a couple of days ahead of general release. Uh, just letting you know here are the episode's first friends. and back all right let's get into it diggers we're very excited and proud to present rock and Roll archaeology episode 24 the wonder years i'm
2: going to chicago
3: that's the last place might be Marvin Pence Gay Jr. was born on April 2nd, 1939, in what is now Howard University Hospital in Washington, D.C. Marvin Sr. was an itinerant preacher, a religious fanatic who was also monumentally lazy, a cruel and abusive father to all of his children, but Marvin Jr. was his favorite target. The D.C. projects were home for the Gay family. It was a hard scrabble existence. For the first seven or so years of Marvin's life, he lived without electricity or indoor plumbing. Marvin's mother, Alberta, was a domestic servant. It was her meager income that fed them. Barely. Starting very young, as early as four years old by some accounts, Marvin started singing in church. He also started teaching himself piano and drums. In his early years as a working musician, it was drumming and not singing that got Marvin the steady work. Growing up black in Washington was a unique experience. Unlike other ghettos, ours was backed up to all the buildings and institutions dedicated to lofty American principles. That drove us a little crazy. From our junior high school, you'd see the Capitol dome and be reminded of what it stood for. Then after school, Marvin and I would be chased from a public playground by an official screaming, Get out! This is for whites only. That's Dewey Hughes, a childhood friend of Marvin's, quoted in Divided Soul, The Life of Marvin Gaye by David Ritz, published in 1991. In 11th grade, Marvin Gaye dropped out of Cardozo High School in Northwest D.C., to get out from under his father's abuse, he impulsively joined the U.S. Air Force. He hated it. After just six months, the U.S. Air Force kicked him out with a general discharge, deeming him unfit for military life. Back in D.C., Marvin couchsurfed it because he didn't want to face his dad, and he went at music with a renewed sense of urgency. Bottle, bottle, bottle,
0: Duop, <advisory> <B> with its sparse instrumentation, mirrored the bare bones of teenage <fears> hurt, fear, fear, and innocence. This music made Marvin realize that. Secular singing could serve as an outlet for his own unarticulated yearnings.
3: The song is sincerely a doo-wop classic by the Moonglows, written by Harvey Fuqua. The quote is from the Ritz biography. Marvin had a doo-wop group. Of course he did. They called themselves the Marquis, and Marvin was their lead tenor. Bo Diddley, he of the Bo Diddley Beat, lived in Washington, D.C. for a hot minute in the late 50s. Bo found the Marquise and brought them into the studio. Bo Diddley produced two singles that went nowhere, but Harvey Fuqua noticed the Marquise and signed them to a management deal. He took the Marquise with him to Chicago, rebranded them as Harvey and the Moonglows, and they cut a couple of albums for Chess Records. In Marvin's own telling, Harvey Fuqua became the mentor and father figure he never had growing up. As for the new moon glows, they didn't chart very well. doo was fading by 1959, but they hit the chitlin circuit and meeked out a living. Fuqua taught Marvin and the boys something called blow harmony, a resonant, airy tone imbued with emotion and romance. It became an enduring component in Marvin Gaye's repertoire. Here's how he explained it in one of his many interviews with David Ritz. Harvey would tell us, look, the other cats are singing do, do, do.
0: It ain't do, it's who. He'd show us how to fix our mouth muscles to get all sorts of other sounds, mainly who, who, who. That was his blow harmony. He taught us to make our breath part of the phrasing, even part of the sound. It was an eye-opening or should I say, mouth-opening experience.
3: In 1960, Marvin followed Harvey up to Detroit. Harvey's small indie label was absorbed by Motown, and Harvey signed on as an in-house producer and songwriter. Marvin was signed to Harvey's label, so Motown took on Marvin Gaye as well. Kind of a package deal. That's how Marvin joined the assembly line at Hitsville, USA. The next stage of Marvin's musical apprenticeship was drumming and singing on other artists' Motown hits. That big drum sound on Dancing in the Streets by Martha and the Vandellas, that's Marvin Gaye. He's also credited as a co-writer. By the mid-60s, Marvin was a singing star and a busy session musician at Motown, but he had a complicated and contentious relationship with the company throughout. Energetic hits like Stubborn Kind of Fellow and Hitchhike enjoyed chart success, and Heard It Through the Grapevine was a crossover smash in 1968. His duets with Tammy Terrell and other singers on Motown were big crossover hits, too. He was now right up there with the Temptations and the Supremes, up at the very top of the Motown roster. But these hit songs, while gratifying on a certain level, diverged from Marvin's true ambition. He often talked about being the black Frank Sinatra, and Marvin did possess some of Sinatra's instinctive gift for phrasing. Marvin also dreamed of following in the footsteps of great balladeers like Nat King Cole. He did several albums in that vein, and they all sounded lovely, but commercially they were duds. Summer of 1970, he presented What's Going On to Barry Gordy at Motown, the pivotal single of Marvin Gaye's career, title cut for the upcoming album, his first self-produced recording. What's Going On diverged from everything. Uh, There was very little in Marvin's career to that point that hinted or suggested anything like this song. It was itself, it was unique, and Barry Gordy just fucking hated it. He eventually, reluctantly, came around, and to his credit, Barry Gordy freely admits that he was dead wrong about what's going on. Marvin educated me, was how he put it. Almost a year later, the album was ready for release, and Marvin Gaye educated everyone.
2: Mother, mother, there's too many of you to cry. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you die. You know.
3: piece of music that appears in front of your ears like a sonic hologram depicting a city in suspended animation. Congas here, piano over there, the bass sneaking by in the foreground, the strings sailing by and back. Here's a protest record, a suite about life's iniquities, that barely breaks into a sweat. Marvin doesn't browbeat and rage, he floats into your conscience. These aren't songs so much as ruminations, dreamy litanies delivered into the middle distance with Marvin is a watchful zephyr, one minute warning of modern life's unwholesome drift, the next describing a more godly, more loving world. That's some nice writing. It's from a 2001 article in Mojo Magazine by Jim Irvin. Found it. Where else? Rock's back pages. Another fine rock journalist is Ryan Dombol. Ryan's perspective greatly informed our own perspective on this album, and we thank him warmly for that. Anyhow, Ryan had this to say about what's going on in his Pitchfork.com review of the 40th anniversary edition.
0: The album hums and glides on the effortless multi-track Marvins that swoop through the stereo spectrum like ghosts. Gay's signature vocal ad lib started here and have endured through R&B and hip-hop ever since.
3: We don't know if he was the first, but Marvin was certainly one of the first singers to really make full use of multi-track technology. His uh, ability to harmonize with himself on tape using the blow harmony technique added depth and complexity to what's going on. It's a symphony of emotions rightfully considered one of the most important records of the rock era. All All right, we got to name check the amazing bass guitarist James Jamerson, one of the original funk brothers of Motown. We think James is one of the all-time greats on that instrument, and he really, really deserves more props and recognition. He's literally on hundreds of hit recordings. But his work on What's Going On is just... uh, Exquisite. He really brought his best to this project. Underneath the lush strings and layered vocals, James Jamerson is the beating heart of the album. On Mercy Mercy Me, above that soft but persistent Funk Brothers groove, Marvin delivered simple but profound commentary on environmental concerns. It's one of the first songs to ever take on that issue, and it was definitely the first hit song to do so. And of course, the title track remains one of the most influential protest songs ever created. Yes, it's a protest song. The tagline, the gist of it, still rings true across generations. Only love can conquer hate. Okay, let's pause to help pay the bills, and we'll come back and try to expand our heads.
2: Oil wasted on the oceans and upon our seas Fish full of region.
3: That's a 1971 cut called Cybernaut from the album Zero Time. It's from a couple of electronic music pioneers who went by the cryptic moniker Tonto's Expanding Headband. Zero Time uh, didn't do much commercially, but a lot of other musicians heard it and uh, got their heads expanded. Stevie Wonder was among them, and he told his team, "Find these guys, take me to them. So, let's meet the Tonto guys. Malcolm Cecil and Robert Margleff first met each other in the late 1960s. Londoner Malcolm Cecil was a radar technician in the Royal Air Force turned jazz bassist. New Yorker Robert Margleff came from Andy Warhol's factory scene and was an early synthesizer enthusiast. Together, they created Tonto, the original neo-timbral orchestra. It was a Frankenstein's monster of an instrument. A a bunch of different tone generators patched together and reanimated by a couple of long-haired, psychedelic, drug-taking, mad scientists. In those early years of the electronic music revolution, Tonto was technologically advanced beyond anything then available. Quite simply, the world's biggest, baddest electronic music array. By the way, Tonto is still around. Over 50 years later, it's housed in a museum in Calgary, Canada. It's rebuilt and functional. If you make an appointment, you can even play it. Tonto has outlived one of its builders. Sadly, Malcolm Cecil passed in 2021 at the age of 84. The main controller is a Moog modular synthesizer augmented by modules from ARP, Obenheim, and custom sections designed and built by Malcolm Cecil. We described it as a Frankenstein's creation, but really it's more like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, a giant circular array of electronics that take up an entire room. It required both of them working as a team just to operate. So Stevie Wonder showed up at their door, And the three of them, using Tonto as their main tool, started one of the most prolific and impactful creative runs in the history of recorded music. It was a blessing in a way because we could remain focused on the music. We never heard the
0: word, it's it's over budget or it's under budget or we're running out of money or anything else. Steve brought us the greatest blessing of all was to be able to really just concentrate on the art. To know that we'd all be making enough cake to stay alive and to work and to be creative.
3: And all we had to do was just be creative and work in the studio. And it was really a great blessing. It lasted for five years, which I think is enough, you know. Five albums in five years, 240 songs recorded. Almost 50 of them were released. Hit single after hit single, capped off with three consecutive Grammys were album of the year. Inner Visions, fulfillingness's first finale, and Songs in the Key of Life.
2: Men's So this phrase, tell me who I live, will come
3: to me how many I live. Stevie Wonder first came to Cecil and Margalef at their New York studio in early summer of nineteen seventy-one. He was wide open, brimming with confidence, ready to pursue different ideas and new directions. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On had communicated a sense of the possible to him, and he was ready for more. Much, much more. Like Marvin Gaye, who he knew well and collaborated with musically on numerous occasions, Stevie spent the 60s on Barry Gordy's assembly line in Motown, tightly supervised as he cranked out the hits now 21 years of age, legally emancipated and an established star, Stevie had pretty much made up his mind to stick with Motown. That basement studio on West Grand Boulevard had been his home away from home growing up, and he wanted to continue on with his Motown family, even if he was going to record elsewhere. He wanted a better deal, though, much better. We can help you with that, Cecil and Margulaff told him. They introduced him to their attorney and agent, a true son of the Bronx by the way of Harvard Law School, Jonathan Vagoda. Vagoda's superpower was having people underestimate him. The joke around Motown was that if Stevie could actually see his agent, he'd probably fire him. He was at first glance unprepossessing, short and fad, rumpled and profane, but extremely effective, just the same. A few months after retaining Jonathan Vigoda, on July 31st, 1971, Stevie signed a deal with Motown slash Tom Records. The three-album contract more than quadrupled his share of the royalties and gave him full creative control. 7-J! The screening of Motown continues apace, with performers l- let loose to try and divine the boundaries of their newly found freedom. And Stevie Wonder has become the brightest light of all. It's consistently innovative and lustily creative. It's propelled by confidence and artistic maturity. The quote is from Lenny Kaye's 1973 review of Inner published in Rolling Stone. We retrieved it using Rock's back pages. Here's a, another quote about Inner from the Dean of Rock Critics, Robert Christgau. Words like masterpiece get thrown around much too glibly in the music biz, yet for all the indulgence of the usage, the irresistible beauty of this record calls for inept superlatives. Stevie Wonder has had me thinking for the better
2: part of a week about just what a rock and roll masterpiece might be. You know,
0: Paris, Beirut. you know, I mean uh, Iraq, Iran, Eurasia, you know, I speak very, very um fluent Spanish. Uh Toro Chevere. Chevere, Jing Chevere
2: Is that right, mama? I got my shaking room on the loaf. Everybody's got
3: Let's backtrack a little bit, though. We'll return to Intervisions. In the summer of 1972, now almost three years removed from the debacle at Altamont, uh, we tell that story in Chapter 19, the Rolling Stones returned to North America. The STP Stones Touring Party. 48 shows in 31 cities in just eight weeks. One of the things that we always liked best about the Rolling Stones throughout their career, they've used their clout and fame to showcase Black American musicians and get them in front of new audiences. For this tour, they tapped Stevie Wonder. Stevie's set included early hits, songs from Music of My Mind, and this smash, a preview from the upcoming album, Talking Book, (laughs) released October 1972. ¶¶ After the tour finale, Three Nights at Madison Square Garden, Mick Jagger politely but firmly told Stevie, Hey, listen, mate, you need to start headlighting your own tour. <laughs> you see, Stevie had put together Wonderlove, a tight, punchy outfit of a mix of Motown veterans and some flashy newcomers. And as the Stones touring party proceeded, Wonderlove started showing up the headliner. (laughs) Mick recalled years later, without rancor or jealousy, that many of the concert reviews devoted just as much space to Stevie Wonder as they did to the Rolling Stones. Ah, we checked, and they did. (laughs) We'll link an example from the New York Times in the show notes.
0: was just so lucky, thrown into it like I was, and we became so close. All Stevie really wanted to do, and this is what I love about him, was to find the answer in music. We both had that in common. Neither of us did drugs. I'd be in my room juicing carrots while the rest of the band was out whoring around and Stevie would come in and we'd hang.
3: Now, that's a quote from Michael Cimbello, lead guitarist, uh, one of those young hotshots Stevie hired, just 20 years old when he auditioned. The song is called Saturn, and Michael co-wrote it with Stevie. We pulled the quote from Signed, Sealed, and Delivered, Mark Rabowski's biography of Stevie Wonder, which we recommend. Mark also wrote a bio of Otis Redding that we lean on quite a bit for episode 13. Good, good resource. The following summer of 1973, Stevie did, in fact, embark on his own headline tour, playing arenas in support of his new album, Intervisions, released on August 3rd. All right, a few more words about Intervision. It's brilliant, of course, exuberant, spiritual, observant, crafty, and complex, but also funky and fresh and incredibly catchy all the way through. The critical and popular consensus seems to have coalesced around Songs in the Key of Life, that's the one they call Stevie's magnum opus, his crowning achievement. But We don't necessarily disagree, but man oh man, we just gotta throw some love to Intervisions. Eager to strike while the album was hot, two days after the release of Intervisions, Stevie and Wonderlove played Greenville, South Carolina on the evening of August 5th, 1973, The following day, after dozing off for a bit, Stevie was riding in the passenger seat, listening to a mix of his new single, Higher Ground, on the headphones. He was riding deep in his own inner world, riding north from Greenville to Charlotte, riding along on I-85 in a big rented Mercury, his cousin, John Harris, at the wheel.
2: But
3: Before an inch or two of miracles, Stevie Wonder would have died out on that highway. A severe concussion, but no surgery was necessary. Stevie was somewhat responsive the next day and able to sit up in bed and talk the day after that. Mostly, just because he looked rough, head and face was all swollen and purple, Stevie stayed in a private room at NC Baptist for about a week and took very few visitors. He then retreated to his new home in Los Angeles to complete his recovery. Yeah, chalk it up to being 23 years old and bulletproof, six weeks later Stevie was back on stage, though it did take him a few months to build back up to a full-time touring schedule. Other than a still-visible scar on his forehead, the only lingering physical effect was some loss to a sense of smell that hung around for years. Psychologically and spiritually, though, a whole other story. From interviews with Stevie and those close to him, it's obvious the accident and the resulting coma was like a reboot for him, a massive inflection point, a defining moment in his life. I'm so glad that he let me try it again, he sang prophetically in Higher Ground, a song that was surging through his headphones at the moment of the crash. In the aftermath of that experience, he internalized that notion, keep on trying till I reach the higher ground. on Reggae Woman was kind of a sleeper hit. It's lewd and delirious and we love it. It was the second single from Fulfilliness dropped in late 1974. It would be nearly two years before the next hit. A little aside here. Just something that we mused on while listening to and reading about Stevie. Consider, just for a moment, the titles from that five-album span where Stevie Wonder collaborated with Malcolm Cecil and Robert Margaleff. The first three titles, Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Inner Visions, the albums that came out before the accident, they suggest an artist in search of something, someone looking for their own true self. The last two titles, Fulfillingness's first finale, and Songs in the Key of Life, Fulfillingness, the key of life, words from an artist who has found it and has decided to share that with you. All right, we'll come right back after we hear from some friends. Now, when we said, let's hear from some friends, we weren't just talking about our sponsors. At the top of the show, we said that Stevie Wonder's run of albums and tours during the 70s is one of the big important takeaways in music history from that decade, or any decade for that matter. Those years were full of great albums and history-making tours from superstar artists, but none were more beloved by the public. No artist received more accolades from critics, and none were more influential on other musicians. Let's spend a few minutes on that third point. First, a reminder, we did an r and short called Diamond Dust that explores guitar icon Jeff Beck's relationship with Stevie. Interesting story. Go check it out. We'll link it in the show notes. Now, let's look at two of our favorite 70s soul artists. They paid close attention to what Stevie Wonder was doing. Well, everybody did, but these were early adopters, and you can hear that. Any chance we get to play some great song examples? Well, you know how we do. Let's cue one up. When they released that song in 1975, the Isley Brothers were in their 20th year as a recording and touring act. The Isleys were there at the beginning. And all through the 60s, they just kept popping up. Close by while history is being made, like a funky version of Forrest Gump. Jimi Hendrix was their tour guitarist before he went solo. The Beatles covered their version of Twist and Shout. Phil Spector produced that for the Isleys, by the way. Evolving from gospel to doo-wop to rhythm and blues to rock and roll and funk and soul, they smoothly adapted to the times and the trends. They were a Motown act for much of the 60s, recording in that Detroit basement with Marvin, Stevie, Smokey, the Temps, all of them. By the 70s, they were firmly rooted in a modern funk sound, and to us, their stankiest, grooviest cut was that last one, Fight the Power, released in 1975. They got some of that stank from their co-producers, on loan from Stevie Wonder, our Tonto friends, Malcolm Cecil and Bob Margaleff. Our favorite Isley story? The first big hit they wrote themselves was It's Your Thing, released in 1969 on Buddha Records. Great song, by the way. It's also a thinly veiled diss track, a dart-tossed right at their former boss, the Motown mogul himself, Barry Gordy. Barry uh, did not like being told who to socket it to. <laughs> he was so incensed, he threatened legal action. The Isleys weren't intimidated. They basically said, do what you want to do, Barry Gordy. <laughs> Free speech, baby. And uh, that was the end of that lawsuit talk. No shade whatsoever to great 70s soul artists like Cool and the Gang, the OJs, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and of course... Parliament Funkadelic, we just wanted to feature the Isleys because of the Cecil and Margleff connection, and because we think they're kind of underrated and overlooked. Uh, a sad footnote as we were in production, we got the news that founding member Rudy Isley passed away on October 11th, 2023. He was 84. Rest in power, Rudy. All right, next up. <laughs> Mm Mm-hmm, tell me something good. Stevie Wonder wrote that banger. It was a big summer hit in 1974, and it crossed over, went all the way to number two on the mainstream charts. The group was Rufus, and they featured a 21-year-old powerhouse singer named Shaka Khan. The song launched her career. The demo that got Rufus signed to ABC Records was a fierce cover of Stevie Wonder's Maybe Your Baby. That was released as a single off their debut album, uh, but it didn't take off. Stevie offered to produce the next one, but they liked the guy they were working with already, Don Monaco. But if you want to write a song for us, though, Stevie... (laughs) So he brought them Tell Me Something Good, and Rufus went straight into the studio and cut it. Shaka Khan went on to have a great career. A decade later, in 1984, she sang I Feel For You, written by Prince, the first mainstream hit that featured a rapper. Stevie plays harmonica on it. She scored another huge 80s hit when she teamed up with Stevie Winwood on Higher Love. Alright, back to Tell Me Something Good. It was the first of ten Grammy Awards for Shaka Khan voted Best R&B Song by a group or duo in 1975. And just one year later, at the seventy-six Grammys,
2: well, I'm I'm
0: I'm very happy to win this, and I I want to uh, thank uh, Phil Ramone who co-produced this with me, uh, and Phoebe Snow who sang along with me on the album, and Art Garfunkel who sang with me on My Little Town. Was- And uh, most of all, I'd like to thank uh, Stevie Wonder, who didn't make an album this year. So.
3: And <laughs> <laughs> that's Paul Simon accepting his Album of the Year Grammy for his excellent 1975 release, Still Crazy After All These Years. To put it mildly, the Grammys are a less than perfect gauge of artistry and influence, but the Academy of Recording Arts got it right when they awarded Stevie Wonder a ton of hardware in the 1970s. Besides Stevie Wonder, only three other artists have done the album of the year hat trick. The artist we just heard from, Paul Simon, is one of them. The other two are Frank Sinatra and, as of 2020, Taylor Swift, and Stevie is the only one to get that award for three consecutive releases. Up until just a few years ago, when Beyoncé passed him up, Stevie Wonder had pulled more Grammys across all categories than any other solo artist, 25 altogether. His last album of new material came out nearly 20 years ago now, but with over 100 million units sold, Stevie Wonder is still one of the top 10 selling artists of all time. And as big as he is in America, he's even bigger internationally. Stevie Wonder's music is like a universal language. We can think of just two other English language musical artists from the 20th century with that kind of massive cross-cultural appeal. The Beatles and Bob Marley. Stevie had lots of big hits in the 80s, and he was active all the way into the 2000s, but his towering legacy was forged in the early and mid-70s, and he capped it all off with his incredible 1976 release, Songs in the Key of Life. We're going to delve into that album a little, but first things first. With the release of Fulfillingness, Stevie completed the three-album deal he signed when he turned 21. Time to negotiate a new recording contract that would eat up a chunk of the year. Stevie also flirted with retiring from music and moving to Africa, and he was more than half serious about that, according to those who knew him well. Nobody knows for certain except Stevie, but there's a lot of speculation that meeting Bob Marley, they played together at a festival in Kingston, Jamaica, October 1975, meeting Bob Marley is what clinched it and convinced Stevie to stay with music. So, The recordings that would eventually inhabit the next album proceeded only in fits and starts throughout 1975 and on into the next year. Some of Stevie's team started wearing t-shirts that said, It's almost finished. And it has to be said, Stevie was tough to work with, not because he's a jerk or insufferable, Not nothing like that. It's just time works differently for him. There's no day or night for Stevie. Michael Cimbello, bassist Nathan Watts, keyboardist Greg Fillinganes, Cecil and marglef they all have Stevie Wonder stories. (laughs) He's famously late for everything. He'll do take after take of something, then stop on a dime and start something else completely. You won't hear from him for over a week, and then the phone rings at 3 a.m. Get to the studio now. (laughs) As for the contract negotiation, that proceeded slowly, too. Like a superstar athlete hitting free agency in their prime, Stevie could name the terms. Meantime, speculation in the music press was rampant. The rumor mill was in overdrive. Everyone agreed on one thing. This would likely be the biggest recording deal in history to that point. Paging Jonathan Fagoda. Stevie Wonder ended up sticking with Barry Gordy and Motown. On his behalf, Jonathan Magoda struck a seven-album deal. It included a signing bonus of $13 million, a lot of coin back then. For perspective, around that same time, Elton John and Paul McCartney negotiated renewal deals with their respective labels. Those two each got about $8 million as a signing bonus. The contract terms were also incredible, unheard of. A 20% royalty rate. At the time, the superstar rate in the recording industry was 12 to 15%. New acts would typically get 3% after expenses. For Stevie Wondersteel, throw in the publishing rights, ownership of the master tapes, full creative control, final approval on any greatest hits or anthology releases. Stevie was also free to work as a producer for other artists and take the entire fee. No more splitting that with Motown. In his memoir, Barry Gordy said he put his entire net worth and that of his company on the line. They went all in to keep Stevie at Motown. Probably exaggerating, but not by much. Anyway, after two-plus years of hype and anticipation, on September 28, 1976, Motown Tamla finally released Stevie Wonder's 18th studio album, Songs in the Key of Life. And it was worth every bit of the wait. to write and record, with over 130 musicians listed in the credits, released as a double album plus a bonus EP, 21 songs, clocking in at nearly an hour and a half. Now, one might think we'd end up with a bloated, overcooked double album, kind of like the Beatles uh, with the White Album or Tales from Topographic Oceans, but yes, brilliant at times, but disjointed and overambitious and way too long. One might think that, and with good reason. One would be wrong. Songs in the Key of Life never loses the plot, never strays from the singular blazing vision of the artist. It runs long, yes, but Stevie Wonder turns that into a strength. By then, he had soaked up so many influences. He needed that link to showcase all of his prodigious, diverse talent. And it's glorious. An hour and a half, and you still want more. Uh, A few highlights. Uh, Love's in need of love today. And the anthemic track, As, show a new maturity from the wonder kid who sang about puppy love at Motown. In April of 1975, Stevie became a father for the first time. Isn't She Lovely includes a track of his daughter Aisha playing in the tub. Stevie wouldn't edit it down from the original seven minutes, so Isn't She Lovely was never released as a single. It was a huge radio hit anyway on the strength of Colin requests. Contusion and Saturn both showcase a level of technical prowess that would fit right on any progressive rock album, maybe one of Steely Dan's later offerings. That's our boy, Michael Zambello, playing guitar on those tracks, by the way. All throughout, the songwriting craft is just something to behold. On a level with Lennon and McCartney, hooks piled on top of hooks, tucked into bridges and breaks, fills and killer intros. The album's two biggest hits were the funky nostalgic I Wish, we just played a bit of that, And the strutting, swaggy Sir Duke, that one became standard repertoire for every marching band in the country. Well, the good ones, anyway. (laughs) It is a pretty demanding piece.
0: songs seemed to be a permanent fixture. It held the number one spot 13 weeks in a row, then was moved out by Hotel California. But after dropping to number four, leaped back up to number one for a 14th week and refused to leave the chart for 80 more weeks.
3: For Stevie Wonder, 1977 was just one big, long victory lap He was on tour in Africa and didn't attend the Grammys in February, so he accepted his award via satellite feed, which was still very new at the time. (laughs) The feed glitched partway through. The host, singer Andy Williams, treated millions of viewers to an awkward faux pas when he asked, Stevie, can you see us? In a long cover story in Rolling Stone, published that summer, Stevie answered that existential question, saying... When I look out at the audience, all I see is beautiful people. He also expressed a desire to get away from all this superstar shit and do something different. Get a a little bit out there with his next album. He toured the world, wrote songs for Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney, did drop-ins at concerts by the Commodores, Earthwind, Fire, Billy Preston. One night in New York, he dropped in for the Encore at an Elton John concert. For his fall tour of North America, Stevie brought Bob Marley along as an opener. This song was something Stevie cooked up during sound checks on that tour. Like the Beatles after Sgt. Pepper, Stevie stumbled a bit in the wake of all that acclaim and success. He spent a whole year on a brilliant, but also perplexing, at least to the record-buying public, soundtrack album, Stevie Wonder's Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, released in 1979. Plants was a flop, and Motown took a beating. The ensuing tour with a symphony orchestra in tow was another hugely expensive bust and canceled halfway through. Stevie... Quickly went back to work, though, and cranked out Hotter Than July, released late summer of 1980. To Barry Gordy's vast relief, it was a return to form and a solid hit. Stevie Wonder was back. All right, we'll come back for the final section right after a quick word from some friends. Following up a huge success is difficult for just about everyone, it seems. After What's Going On, Marvin Gaye did a soundtrack project, too, when he scored the film Trouble Man, one of those black exploitation flicks from the early 70s. Shaft, soundtrack by Isaac Hayes, and Superfly, scored by Curtis Mayfield, are prime examples of the genre. Here's David Ritz from his biography of Marvin. The musical scores were far more interesting than the
0: silly Outs and Robber films they accompanied. Trouble Man was no exception. He viewed it as a large canvas on which he painted his newly discovered Moog synthesizer figures.
3: The bleak, pessimistic tone of Trouble Man was a jarring transition from the lofty spirituality of what's going on. The title cut made some noise on the R&B charts and became a staple of Marvin's live shows, but it failed to cross over. David Ritz once again. The type style on the album
0: cover showed Marvin Gaye's name shot through with bullets. And the final musical figure in the suite, after Marvin repeated the word trouble over and again, was the sudden sound of a pistol shot. A Chilling Prophecy.
3: The true follow-up to What's Going On came out in 1973 after Marvin moved to Los Angeles. He bought a house in the Hollywood Hills and settled his parents in a place in the Crenshaw District. The album's title Let's Get It On is actually kind of deceptive. The title cut is just about the sexiest song ever made. Overall, though, the album has that soft flow, a contemplative tone. It's an inner dialogue about love and sex that consecrates it in the spirit and waxes philosophical a worthy encore to what's going on and a huge crossover hit the biggest selling album of his career Marvin was back But within a few years, it all unraveled. A messy divorce, bad investments, a ferocious drug addiction, and a whole bunch of back taxes owed to the IRS all combined to chase Marvin Gaye out of America. In the summer of 79, after a tour of the UK, he just missed his plane back to the States. Marvin hated flying. And anyway, he didn't want to face it any of it. He still owed Motown an album, and he'd stiffed many of the people who worked for him. On top of that, tax troubles, back alimony, liens on his earnings and his estate, on and on and on. He was millions of dollars in the hole. For nearly three years, Marvin Gaye lived in self-imposed exile. By 1981, he was staying in a squalid drug den in London, freebasing away while his four-year-old son, Bubby, slept on a mattress on the floor in the next room. was extended a lifeline by a belgian businessman named freddy Coussert. freddy was a huge music fan and finding marvin gay in london down and out in a desperate need of help was one of the great events of his life freddy took marvin and bubby to live with him and his family in austin a small seaside town in belgium for probably the first time in decades marvin got free of cocaine Freddie gave him an old 10-speed bike, and Marvin went for long daily rides. The clean sea air and the cozy, quiet life with the Cousert family reinvigorated him. Then they started attending to business. With Freddie Cousert's help, Marvin asked Barry Gordy to free him from his Motown contract. Surprisingly, Gordy agreed, and just like that, in 1981, Marvin's 20-year relationship with Motown ended. Columbia offered him a deal, and Marvin signed with them in March of 1982. He found a studio in the village of Owain, Belgium, overlooking the rolling green hills where Napoleon Bonaparte made his last stand at Waterloo. He went to work on his first and only Columbia release, Midnight Love. Halfway through, Marvin reached out to his old mentor, Harvey Fuqua, who came to Belgium to help him complete the record. By November, he was ready for release. Sexual Healing was the biggest single of Marvin's entire career. Riding high on the multi-platinum sales for Midnight Love, Marvin finally came back to America. At his lowest point in London, in his druggy dreams, Marvin fantasized a big comeback, returning to America a radiant success, a star reborn. He accomplished that, and in doing so, pulled off several miracles, coming all the way back professionally, paying down astronomical debts, and getting clean. Marvin's relationship with Freddy Cousert had soured by then. One big point of contention between them, Freddie worried that going back to L.A., back to all the dysfunction and temptation, might undo those miracles. His fears turned out to be well-founded. Marvin, Marvin, Marvin He was
2: a friend of mine And he could sing a song it's hard and.
3: On April 1st, 1984, the night before his 45th birthday, Marvin Gaye was fatally shot by his father in their Los Angeles home during a heated argument over a missing insurance document. Things had been strained for months. Marvin had stage fright. It plagued him his entire career. Under the pressure of touring and performing again, he slid back into drug abuse and the depression and paranoia that comes with it. The previous Christmas, Marvin gave his father a pistol for protection. Unbeknownst to him, that same gun would become his murder weapon. During the argument, Marvin kicked his father, leading to a physical altercation. Alberta separated the two men, but Marvin Sr. came back brandishing the gun and shot his son in the chest. He fired again before the house erupted in chaos. Marvin Gaye was pronounced dead at the hospital, and he left no will. Marvin Sr. claimed self-defense, eventually pleaded no contest to voluntary manslaughter, and received a suspended six-year sentence with five years of probation. Stevie Wonder played and sang at Marvin Gaye's funeral in Los Angeles on April 5, 1984. Smokey Robinson and the actor and activist Dick Gregory delivered eulogies. Per his family's request, Marvin Gaye's remains were cremated and scattered in the Pacific Ocean. Marvin Gaye's biographer, David Ritz. Marvin never recovered from being an abused and battered child.
0: His talent wasn't enough to see him through. Because he never loved himself, he always felt unloved. But he had the rare courage to pour the pain of his troubled life into his art. And as a result, his art was expanded and enriched.
3: We'll give Marvin the last word. This one is a favorite of ours.
2: Mother, 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 mother. Everybody thinks we're wrong. Mother, mother, who are they to judge us? Mother, mother, simply calls me where I hell long. Mother, mother,
3: Back in early 72, not long after they met, Malcolm Cecil was chatting with Stevie Wonder at the studio. That morning, Malcolm saw in the newspaper it was Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, January 15th. He mentioned that to Stevie and suggested they make a recording of him singing Happy Birthday to the late Dr. King. According to Malcolm, Stevie replied, Oh man, I don't know how to play that song. So right then and there, Stevie wrote the hook for a different Happy Birthday. Then he held on to it until 1980. It was the fourth single off the Hotter Than July album. Then, the movement for a national holiday honoring Dr. King was finally gaining momentum. Prior to 1979, each session of Congress, the enabling legislation would be introduced and each session it would die in committee. In 1979, it finally made it to the floor of the U.S. House and lost by just five votes. Stevie reached out to MLK's widow, Coretta Scott King, and the bill's author, Congressman John Conyers, who represented suburban Detroit. They organized a series of rallies in Washington, D.C. in support of the new holiday.
1: The broad coalition of political religious entertainment and civil rights figures that Stevie Wonder visibly gathered together behind his three-year intensive support of the proposal reveals something rare and wonderful indeed.
3: That's the journalist Carol Cooper from a 1984 article published in The Face. We found that piece on Rock's back pages. Towards the end of the essay, Ms. Cooper writes,
1: The record-breaking gathering of 300,000 marchers in the nation's capital on the last weekend in August to reaffirm Dr. King's call for peace, jobs, freedom, tipped the scales.
3: President Ronald Reagan signed the King holiday bill into law on November 2nd, 1983, establishing the third Monday in January as a federal holiday in honor of civil rights icon Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Do, 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 do. There's a short list of albums across the rock era that stand out as more, much more than just recorded music. They're enduring cultural artifacts, a part of history. Any complete study of life as it was lived in that era has to include them. Right here, with this episode, to that short list, we'll add Marvin Gaye's What's Going On and two entries from Stevie Wonder, Inner Vision's and songs in the key of life. Stevie's contribution to American life goes beyond even that. With the instrumental role he played in bringing the King Holiday to fruition, it was a fitting capstone for an incredibly productive era that we call the Wonder Years. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Rockin' Archaeology on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Thanks for spending time with us, and you know what to do. Keep up the rockin'.
2: Did you know that life is given love, a guarantee to last and forever in another day? Just as time knew to move on since the beginning, and the seasons know exactly when to change. Just as kindness knows no shame, knows through all your joy and pain. But I'll be loving you always. As the day I
1: Rock and Roll Archaeology is written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson at Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, and links at pantheonpodcast.com. All songs can be found for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. Contact us on social... At Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.